BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. And we're back. Hello, friends. Matthew Zachary here. A quick reminder, as always, before we get started, if you like the show and you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving me a review, a star, a rating, whatever they got going on now. You know what it is. Or don't. Your choice. On the show today, Dr. Rafael Fonseca, great guy, great friend, professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, He focuses on multiple myeloma with a sidebar hobby dabbling in what he calls ethics, health, economics. Fun fact of the day, he's a Google scholar. He has his own Wikipedia page courtesy of a birthday gift from his son and as a self-proclaimed pathological optimist, hopes to spread empathy throughout the medical community while protecting the rights of patients so that they can make the best decisions for themselves and no one else. Bonus points for Raphael being a hysterically refreshing voice on Twitter. I will put his handle in the show notes. Enjoy. Raphael, thank you so much for agreeing to come here on Out of Patience. I've been a huge fan. We have so many friends in common. Thanks for being here to talk about all sorts of cool stuff. I am delighted to be here with you. I know we've looked uh, forward to this moment for quite some time. So looking forward to our conversation. Yes. And channeling our mutual friend, punching bag, Joe McHale, of course. As oh, always. my God. Are we going to talk about Joe McHale? Well, anyway, we'll say hi to Joe. Joe, thank you for making the introduction. So I want to start by saying that I think you're one of my first guests ever across like 100 shows or so that has his own Wikipedia page. Did you know this? You know, I was alerted to that. I didn't know that. I think it's pretty brief. So I have to confess, I don't go to it often, but uh, it was it was kind of quite a treat when I first found it. So like those are made by people, right? So someone somewhere said, I like this guy. I'm making him a Wikipedia page. You know who did that? Do you want to hear the backstory? Was it your wife or your family or your dad or something? Oh, my son. <laughs> he thought, why can I give my dad for a birthday gift? He would never get anything. And, you know, uh, just uh, there's the, he's always like denying, oh, don't buy me shoes or this or that. So he said, you know what? I'm going to get him a Wikipedia page. And I understand it was a lot of work. Uh, and I didn't know until after the fact. And then he told me and I was just delighted when, when I first learned about it. So I guess the first question is, is it accurate? Uh, for the last time I saw it, yes. I don't know if it's been edited. I guess that's always a possibility. I should go back and look at it. And, and of course, the more content it has, either you're more famous or you're aging. So I, I, I'll have to you know, rely probably more on the latter. I mean, make sure there's no liner notes that says he wished he had gotten this on Christmas that year. 
<laughs> I will, I'll, I'll have to go in and check again. Super cool. Super cool. You're also a Google Scholar and you're the second Google Scholar that I've had on my show. And now I'm a Google Scholar because my Google Scholar friend said, here's all you need to do to be a Google Scholar. You know, it's incredibly useful. Now, I, I have to tell you, I look for that a lot. And, and the first time I was told about it, I, you know, I went and created the profile. Uh, more and more, we look at this, you know, as indicators of, of, you know, like areas of interest, as well as for recruitment of people that we want to bring, you know, here at Mayo. And I'm just, it's, I just have found that this is a, one of the easiest tools to track your productivity and where you are. So, yeah, I am there as well, too. You're also like way more well-published than me. I was part of two posters like five years ago. So you're way more of a Google Scholar than I'll ever be. Well, you know, there's different ways of going about spreading the good message in the world, right? So I want to talk about your backstory. You were born and raised in Mexico. You came here. You're an American citizen now. First of all, what got you into medicine? Was it in the family or you're just like, wow, I'm going to do this? Oh, that's a great story. I loved math, so I wanted to be an actuary, and I thought that was going to be a very easy path forward in my life, because if you love math and you understand math, then you don't have to work that hard. So I thought that's a way to do it. But when I was 17, I had a boating accident that landed me in the hospital, and uh, just you know, just before one goes into college, right? I, I grew up in Mexico, and, and uh, I decided I want to go into medicine, and that's what led me this in this direction. That's it? That's it. It was simple. I have, you know, I have an uncle who's a physician and, you know, he's uh, uh, someone who, you know, of course, was a role model, but it wasn't really directed, uh, you know, by that. It was most mostly because of the experience of being in the hospital, learning of what doctors can do and the difference. And in fact, uh, because it was an accident, I was mostly interacting with plastic surgeons. So my first version of Rafael Fonseca as a physician was a version of a plastic surgeon, which, of course, wouldn't be a great idea because I also suffer from essential tremor. So if you see the hands of a doctor shaking a little bit, you, you know, you're not going to be that confident. I can't imagine that being something you lead with in a patient conversation. Then yes, no, of course. So, you know, honestly, there's quite a bit of serendipity and luck in how I ended up working in what I do now. Uh, a big part of that was opportunity and mentors as well, too. I, I clearly ended up doing what I do now in multiple myeloma because some of the tremendous mentors I had along the way. And uh, little did I know that this was going to become such an active field in, in oncology. So coming up through the ranks, I always like to ask this question of my friends that are in the medical profession in terms of empathy training. Did you have any? Did it exist? You know, that's that's a great question. I've heard about that, and I've, I've heard um, a little bit of a pushback in saying that it's hard to teach empathy, although you can teach em empathic behaviors. I never had that formally. I have been very fortunate to uh, both through my racing and then also through people who have been an important part of my life. I had to become a good listener, which is, of course, an, an a, you know critical important step in just going in that direction of empathy. So the short answer is no. But I would tell you, if I could think of one skill that is so critical important for medicine is, of course, empathy. You know, my day-to-day -day practice and what I do, the medical decision-making is a very brief you know, a moment. I mean, in fact, I, and there's complicated case, but in most cases, I know what I need to do in a very short period of time. But it is that um, aspect of, you know, connecting, understanding, being able to explain, being able to go through the process of what someone goes through, which such a profound human experience as it is to be diagnosed with cancer that, you know, I think makes the difference between a good doctor and not. Uh, if there are good tools out there, I would love to, you know, learn about them. In fact, I, I know of, of colleagues that I, you know, I work with who are brilliant 
but I know fall short in, in their interpersonal skills and in some of their, you know, empathic approaches to, to what they do in medicine. And, you know, these are people with great hearts, great knowledge, but uh, they fall short sometimes in, in the delivery. Well, I've had many conversations across the years with patients and advocates and actually others in the provider world that if you had to choose between a mechanic who is the best mechanic to take care of what's wrong with you and a therapist who is a decent doctor, what would you choose? Where do you want and or need that level of bedside matter in your interactions? You know, it's it's, it's interesting, and and I've had this conversation. Um, uh, my wife uh, also, you know, worked in the hospital and interacted with a lot of uh, physicians and surgeons. And I think it depends on on what you are. Obviously, the most important thing you want to have as a patient is a favorable outcome. But it depends. I mean, you could interact with someone who's going to go in and do a procedure uh, f- that may be a you know world's uh, expert, and for which you may have certain tolerance for. You know, I'm not going to see this person. This person is not going to be with me at the dinner table. I don't have to have a lifelong relationship with that individual. But in the field of cancer where, you know, a patient that I see for the first time might be someone who I'm going to see another 40 or 50 times in their journey and sometimes lifelong, you know, relationships, then it becomes critical important. Now, I would argue that you actually need both. Uh, so hopefully not a lot of people have to face that dichotomy because you also don't want someone who's incredibly nice, um, empathic, but uh, doesn't really have the competence to, to, to drive that care. So I know I'm evading the specific question in a way, uh, but, but, but it is a reality. But I think uh, having that interpersonal skill and that empathy component to someone who builds in many ways what's a primary care relationship with a patient, I would say is an essential component of a su- successful doctor. Yeah, you didn't evade my question. You answered my question, at least for my listeners. Did he answer your question? They're going to set all this hate tweet to you. Speaking of Twitter, you are on Twitter, and it's rare that there are charismatic, energetic, fun conversations with doctors on Twitter. I can think of maybe a handful of people, and you're closing in on 10,000 followers. And I just love what you tweet. What, what is the culture of tweeting for you as a medical professional. You got to be careful, but still, you can really lean into being very important. You know, you you have to be uh, so careful. And I have I have to admit, I'll start with a disclosure. I actually love social media. And in particular, I love Twitter because I find this is a, a space that creates probably some of the best aggregation of information that is out there uh, from uh, very diverse perspectives and and uh, of course, I came to it first and foremost as a physician. Although I, you know, I I'm engaged in you know, you know, current events and other things. But what one has to be incredibly careful because I think the the, the short form of Twitter lends itself quite easily to misunderstanding and the lack of, you know, the usual elements that we all humans use in our communications otherwise, like, you know, nonverbal communication, our body posture, etc. It's just obviously obviously lacking. I think the approach of, of going into Twitter uh, with a real and a profound desire to learn and to listen from other people. And I like to provide perspectives that probably uh, sometimes present a different viewpoint that may not be considered. If I could say, you know, what's your two cents that you bring to Twitter is I'd like to kind of analyze things and think about perhaps a different angle that is not necessarily being considered. And I'm not, you know, I think people know me would know I'm not necessarily a uh, sort of a contrarian, uh, but I do like to, to, to talk about uh, every facet of a conversation that should be discussed. I try to do that, uh, however, with, with kindness, I, you know, with respect to the other side with respect to 
you know, others' uh, perspectives and with a genuine interest in learning about what is it that we're discussing. And, you know, some of my uh, most interesting interactions, human interactions, have come out of Twitter. I've developed friendships. I've met people that I would have never met in any other ways. I've engaged in research projects. I even started some collaborative projects with people. So, I would say the net is positive, but I, I don't I don't use it as a forum to go in and just provide sort of strong, strident uh, you know opinions in one direction that are not really going to be very productive. Right, because we all know Twitter can go south very quickly, very very quickly. And I have friends, I mean, who who have either created a mistake or have approached it in such a way that I think it's been detrimental. Um, I like to, you know, uh, be, again, a voice. I like to be a resource. I like to present perspective. Um, I, I think uh, the one unique opportunity is that you bring people from all sorts of fields, right? It's not like a medical meeting that you're only talking to doctors or a patient support meeting that you're only talking to patients. But you can be surfing on that intersection of the various, you know, populations and individuals that join Twitter. This week on When Twitter Goes Right with Rafael Fonseca. That's this part of the conversation. (laughs) So I want to talk about your pinned tweet from November 9, 2020. And yes, I did look this up today. It says, the day America regains respect and appreciation for pharma. What happened on November 9th, 2020? Oh, you know, that that is such an important tweet. I live in the field of myeloma, as we were talking, where we have seen that there's been a huge progress in our ability to treat the disease and our ability to deliver, you know, promising options for people. And we go from a survival that was two years to a survival that oftentimes exceeds 10 years for patients. And I firmly believe that we we are able to cure patients. But I, I, I live in a world where I recognize that this comes because of a partnership. And a big part of that partnership comes out of the private sector. And most people don't really recognize that and don't give it its due credit. And I think the fact that we were able to develop uh, the vaccines for COVID in such a short period of time and with a very, very hearty participation of the private sector, the pharmaceutical companies, I think to me was just an eye-opener. And I hope other people can you know, can see that, that we're, we're on the verge of going back to a more normal life when under normal circumstances, it could take many more years to go through a process of vaccine development, but that we were able to do that in such a short time. And in that particular day, the announcement was made, of course, that, you know, the vaccines were effective and they would be rolled out and they got their, you know, emergency use authorization that, that I want everyone to recognize that we're all in this together. You know, there's a propensity or a tendency in, in, in medicine to to kind of speak more from the academic side only. But listen, we can't do it on its own, on our own. And and we depend on companies that, you know, pr- produces, uh, you know, drugs and, you know, products and just wonderful things that we bring to patients. Uh, they provide the support for the clinical trials that lead to their, uh, to their you know, validation and ultimately their utilization. So, I am uh, of the belief that we can only achieve it that way. And it's not in the realm of academic centers, et cetera, for us to be producing. Everyone has a role in, in what happens in medicine. But in this case, the private sector delivered and delivered in big strides. So so I think we should all be very proud of that. Um, and, and, and as a country, obviously, you know, the options that this opens, not only for us, but ultimately for the rest of the world. Back with our guest after the break.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So on some of your extraordinarily credible collateral on the internet, I saw these three words, ethics, health, economics. Can you explain that to me? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it is complicated. Of course, we could unpack that over several hours. But I, I feel, and this starts at the bedside to me, I feel like when I am talking to a person that entrusts their health to me, my only consideration is the well-being of that person in front of me. And for me, that is where it starts with, with ethics, right? With ethics being that I have a fiduciary responsibility to that person and I have to do everything in my power to be able to deliver the best there is and, you know, the, the latest uh, for their care. And in my case, of course, that is, that is multiple myeloma. Now, as I do that, I face pressure and I, I, I uh, hear conversations and I talk to people who start talking, well, what about the system? What about the payers? What about society? And so forth. And I, I recognize that the resources are finite. But my job and at that moment, my ethical job is just to, to be an advocate for that particular person, for that particular patient. When I talk about economics, I say, well, yes, I understand where you're coming from, but let's take a holistic perspective. And let me give you an example. You know, people talk about the unit cost of drugs. But we often don't talk about the possibility of people returning to the workforce, you know, the, the complications that are prevented. Uh, and, and we don't even quantify the, you know, the suffering, the more, you know, morbidity, the inability to do things you like, etc. So as one example, last year, we, we, we published a paper that we actually looked at the cost of progression. And what we found was that if you have a person who's on chronic treatment for myeloma, you spend more on drugs than, than if, if you don't and you prevent that progression. But the net is that you end up spending less because you're preventing surgeries, fractures, 
transfusions, hospitalizations, and the like. So when I mean economics, and I'm not in any way uh, formally trained, in fact, anything that I've ever published in this realm, I do so in collaboration and in co-authorship with economics uh, experts or economists. I always say one has to look at the totality of everything that is done. And lastly, there are trade-offs, right? You can you can save in one area, but you're going to end up paying in, in, in another area. So, so I really like that conversation, but mostly because I have the firm conviction that it is because of this innovation that we can do better for patients, not because hematologists like me are getting smarter or we read more. It's just because we have options that are effective. We had a similar but not really quite apples to apples in the young adult cancer community around fertility preservation. Mm-hmm. And it came down to the ethics of guaranteeing a right to parenthood as a means of mental health and an economic gain to the country. Because if you're given the option to be a biological mom or a dad, knowing that your cancer procedures and surgery, whatnot, would make you infertile and you survive, odds are you get to make the economy boom by spending a billion dollars raising a kid. And if they didn't do that, that money wouldn't be in the economy raising that kid. It's you know, it's kind of like a ethereal way to think about it philosophically, but this idea of doing something that actually helps the patient and actually saves money should not be this foreign concept, right? Right. No, and, and you know, I, I think there's, uh, I mean, two things to consider there. One of them are the practicalities, right? So utilitarian approach to that. But the other one is that of principles. And I think uh, I, I don't, participate in the care of, you know, um, minors. So I, I, I know there's complexities I probably cannot uh, begin to understand. But I think just from the principal perspective, I would say, yes, of course, you know, and we, we should go out of our way to make sure that if we have those options that preserve fertility, uh, that will open an opportunity for someone who a great proportion of cases, you know, childhood uh, cancers associated with long-term survival. So why not? So I think it's a failure not to do that. Now, from the utilitarian perspective, you bring the argument, of course, well, you know, those individuals uh, are going to be contributing to society. And therefore, there's sort of an imperative to say, yes, why not? In fact, I've heard this argument quite uh, interestingly for emerging economies. You know, in emerging economies, I've I've had the opportunity to talk all over the world. And sometimes people say, well, you know, in our country, we cannot do this or that. And, you know, there's a whole range also of how doctors become advocates for their patients there. But I heard once an economist say, listen, it's particularly important in emerging economies that we have the younger population be able to return to their work just because of the benefits you were alluding to. You mentioned multiple myeloma. We can go down an entire rabbit hole about that specifically. But one thing that I'm aware of specifically in that space, and then we can acronym and jargon this to the end of days, is the minimally residual disease, the MRD thing. And just for the listeners, it's irrelevant to this particular conversation because what it has to come down to is there's some kind of test that a patient can do to help them not get like a worse version of cancer, something like that. You can explain it better, Rafael. But most patients are not made aware of the test that can help you not get bad cancer, right? So my question to you philosophically, again, is this idea of is this really a patient bill of rights conversation to guarantee to the extent whether you can afford it or not that a patient could have a right to know about a test that could help them? 
Yes. Well, you know, it's um, a lot to unpack again. I think I've used that phrase three times. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, one of the things is what you can do through legislation that would uh, secure uh, or improve access to information. And we've seen some precedent for this, for instance, with mammography, right? When bills were uh, developed about, uh, you know, density and what that means and so forth. And and I would say that is perhaps one approach. Uh, uh, another one would be, of course, to be able to move forward with additional education, both to patients and providers. I mean, the sad reality, and again, I won't go through all the rabbit hole of, of something like myeloma, but the sad reality is that if you you know see a patient with myeloma, the patient is being cared for by a physician who has a very diverse practice. Myeloma may be 5% of their practice. And then you ask yourself, okay, how is that individual? How is she or he keeping up with the medical literature? And uh, it's just uh, literally impossible. I have a hard time keeping up with everything that comes up in multiple myeloma, even though that's 100% of my life. So uh, we need to find ways so that there's better dissemination of that information. That's true as well uh, for, you know, for patients. Now, I would say that's kind of taking the pessimistic approach. A very optimistic approach would be that, you know, efforts from uh, people like you and groups like, you know, uh, like yours and patient support organizations are bringing this to the forefront so that patients can actually get the best theories out there. There was a study a few years back by the Rand Corporation that looked at, you know, the lag between the introduction of something that it's like medically proven to be very successful and its widespread application. And, you know, you would imagine perhaps what I thought about the vaccine that we have it and then overnight everyone is vaccinated. But in the real world, it takes years. And it takes years, even when things have been published in main medical journals, etc. So, I guess that's going back to the original question. Part of that could come through legislation. Part of it comes through the education of physicians. Part of this would come through educations of, of, of patients. And ultimately, no one has more skin in the game than a patient, right? So I, I have to say my most fruitful interactions are with uh, patients and families that are in the deep knowledge of the problem they're dealing with. Now, I realize this is not for everyone, and I realize sometimes it can be quite overwhelming. Uh, but if the person gets uh, themselves to the point or whether it's support of their family to have that deep understanding of their disease, I feel like we can use our time the best. And therefore, then I can go into the depth of explaining, you know, things like genetic testing and MRD testing and all of those things. Yeah, you opened up another Pandora's box and you actually answered my next question, which is how is it possible for today's modern oncologist to possibly keep up? with the array of new diagnostics, with the array of new approvals, you said the medical literature, is that a problem that has a solution? Have you seen anything in the pipeline of innovation that can make the burden of wisdom less of a burden so that a doctor isn't burning out just trying to keep up with the latest technology and approvals? Oh, I wanted to interrupt you to respond because the answer is a resounding yes. And I'll tell you why. First of all, a disclosure, I'm pathologically optimist. So I, I you know, just, just take that for, um, for background of what I'm going to say. But I think we're, we're, we're at, the, at the tipping point on how we think about medicine. So medicine has been historically quite hierarchical, uh, very much uh, in the old model of, you know, patient goes, sees the patient, pay, the patient is told what they're going to do, et cetera. And, and the doctor was relying on uh, superb memory and systems of classification of diseases and, you know, use paradigms for treatment that relied on the memory and perhaps some simple classifications. Um, 
the world is changing and there's so much more information. There's access uh, to that information. And we have uh, big data sets. We have real world data that I think uh, uh, the physicians don't have to be relied as being that, uh, you know, encyclopedia or having that encyclopedic mind to be able to be the best counselors. I think with the advent of all the digital tools, with breaking down barriers on how we communicate with patients, how we, you know, uh, remain in contact through telemedicine, digital solutions, and then how a background of information, such as could be a computer system, will be able to feed us the information we need for the proper decision-making. And I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, many of my physician colleagues practice medicine, myself included, using systems that use variables where you use a cutoff, right? Less than four or more than four, it gives you this or that prognosis. And I, I say that there, were, there were only two reasons why we did that in the past. And one was because, you know, you had to put it in cards and those cards had to fit in one of those side pockets of the doctor, right? Because the, you, you had to carry all that information around. And number two is you had to memorize something that was simple. But as we start integrating all this information, everyone has a you know, mobile device at their hands that can do much more complicated computations that I think the ability to provide precise, uh, better approximations to expectations and reality to patients will be fantastic. And, you know, if we can have cars that are doing self-driving, what is it that, why is it that we cannot have better tools to convey that information to patients, to display it graphically, to provide them with a better assessment of pros and cons that allow them to make that better decision? And let me finish off with this, this example. I think we need to quantify everything we say, including risks and benefits. You see, it's not my area of expertise, of course, you know, like uh, something like mammographic screening, but people say, well, there's benefits and there's harms. Of course, the benefit is let's detect a cancer early, right? So that's fantastic. The harm is anxiety, which is which is important and real. But I think you cannot put them in the same balance and say that anxiety equals uh, the loss of a life on the other side, right? So we need to provide some quantification of what that means to someone. And then based on that, how they go about making their own decisions. So the moral of the story is all hail our future robot overlords. Oh, for sure. They call it artificial intelligence. Some people use a euphemism of augmented intelligence, but uh, we'll have to keep them under control, right? I think we have job security, at least for the foreseeable future, until you know we get to that point that a robot might be able to overcome us. I doubt that's anytime near in the future, but I also don't want people to be uh, uh, limited or negated the potential benefit of increased uh, knowledge and information. Dr. Rafael Fonseca is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's on Twitter, worth following, at rfonzi1, <laughs> R-F-O-N-S-I-1. That's R-F-O-N-S-I-1. Rafael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And let me just say, you probably get this from every guest, but I'm sorry if I'm repetitive. Thank you for all the work you do on behalf of patients. Um, like you, we're passionate about delivering information and making their lives better. And that makes our lives so meaningful. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.